KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we are talking about the roots of white Christian nationalism and its present-day threat to democracy. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. We'll talk about why the voice of white Christian nationalism is growing louder. So just in the last 20 years, we've, we've gone from being a majority white Christian country to one that's no longer a majority white Christian country. We have symbols like our first African-American president being elected. And I think that has really set off a lot of fear among many white conservative Christians. We'll unpack that and talk about how the next generation is challenging white supremacy culture within some Christian churches. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. When rioters descended on the Capitol on January 6, 2021, they put Christian imagery and rhetoric on full display. Some insurrectionists carried a large cross. One held up a photo of Jesus Christ in a Make America Great Again hat. About one in 10 Americans are defined as, quote, adherents to Christian nationalism. According to a joint survey by the Public Religion Research Institute and Brookings Institute, It's a sign that white Christian nationalism is a growing threat, but one that's been deeply embedded in American culture since the founding of this country. Robert P. Jones is the president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute. His latest book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy, chronicles the history of far-right white Christian nationalism in the United States and how it affects our present day. He joins me now to talk more about this history and what it means for our democracy. Robert, welcome to Midday Edition. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. As we dig into this conversation, I want to define what white Christian nationalism is, what white supremacy is, so that we're all on the same page as we uh, talk about this. Can you do that for me? Sure. You know, white supremacy, I, I think, is a term that, you know, is, is probably the oldest term we've got uh, to describe this this phenomenon. But and I think that the challenge with it is because it has been in use for some time and because it has been used often to only describe the most extreme events um, so that, you know, for many you know, what white Americans, when they hear that term, they think of the KKK, they think of people in sheets, burning crosses. And that certainly is an expression, uh, one of the more violent expressions of white supremacy. But, you know, really, it's maybe helpful if we just turn the words around. Um, Instead of white supremacy, we say the supremacy of whites. And if we ask how how has that had a grip um, on the country, it's pretty apparent that everything from school segregation, and these are things in our lifetimes, you know, school segregation, the the segregation of swimming pools and libraries, the whole entire Jim Crow uh, society was built on the idea, really, that whites were entitled to uh, better amenities, uh, things like libraries and swimming pools and schools uh, than non-white citizens. 
And in your book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy, you explore just how deeply ingrained uh, white supremacy is in this country and really globally. And you, you take things back to a 15th century canon law in the Catholic Church. What did you find out? Right. Well, you know, in in the new book, I I did want to try to trace back, you know, where these roots came from. So where did it land um, on the shores uh, that we now call the United States of America? Um, And, and, you know, the really the most recent precedent is in this 15th century set of uh, church doctrines. Um, Now, why do we have church doctrines addressing this? And it's because uh, after uh, there is first European contact again in the kind of mid 15th century. People go back, and uh, these uh, so-called explorers go back, and they they want permission and authority uh, to come back and colonize these lands. And so they get it from the political powers, kings and queens. Uh, but the kings and queens need a moral mandate uh, for this. And where do they turn for that? Well, they turn to the church uh, for that, and the church obliges. And there's a series of papal edicts uh, beginning in 1452, uh, leading up to 1493, uh, which is no coincidence, that's the year Columbus returns, uh, right, and asks for more ships, more missionaries, more soldiers uh, to come back and, and begin a colonization project. But these these documents, it's really quite remarkable that, that the logic, the kind of moral and religious logic uh, that they entail essentially boils down to this. If these lands uh, that were just so-called discovered, uh, encountered by Europeans, are inhabited by people who are not Christian, then they are to be considered enemies of Christ. That's the actual language um, in the documents. And then it goes on to just spell out permission and blessings of the church to vanquish these enemies of Christ, to occupy their lands, to steal their goods. And then again, these words are actually in the documents to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. So what grew out of this belief in this doctrine? This doctrine was um, really not so on my radar as something that's significant until I really started digging in and doing the research, uh, the historical research. Um, But, you know, more familiar terms uh, come directly out of this. So the idea, for example, of manifest destiny, uh, that, that providence with a capital P um, you know, uh, mandated uh, that uh, the United States should stretch from its eastern colonial beginnings all the way across to the Pacific Ocean. Um, and this is an idea right out of uh, the doctrine of discovery. All the ideas of America as a new Zion or a new promised land. I mean, this language is is um, very prominent among Puritans, among uh, other kind of you know early Christians in the country. And even though they're not citing you know the doctrine of discovery, the core idea. Uh, there that that America, uh, you know, is a promised land for for European Christians um, is is very prominent. In fact, it's still with us today. Mm. So fast forward to today, and we see hate crimes like the shooting in Jacksonville. We see book bans on anything related to African American history, along with bans on ethnic studies and gender studies. How does this moment in time fit into the contemporary ways the roots of white supremacy remain hidden? Well, I think it, it's it is just simply remarkable um, that in 2023, um, you know, we are having a state of Arkansas announcing that AP African American history is no longer going to be counted toward high school credit in Florida, uh, you know, banning it uh, altogether, banning books uh, that have to do with um, the teaching of, uh, of about slavery and, and this nation's history. Uh, so I think we're at a moment. I think one of the reasons why we're at this hinge point 
is really because of demographic change in the country. Um, it really has only been in the last 20 years that this dominant ethno-religious identity, that is white Christian identity, has ceased to be the majority in the country. So as recently as um, 2008, uh, when Barack Obama, our first African-American president, was running uh, for president, the country was still 54% white and Christian. Uh, by the end of his second term, uh, that number um, had had slipped uh, to around 45%, and that number is 42% uh, today. So just in the last 20 years, we've, we've gone from being a majority white Christian country to one that's no longer a majority white Christian country. We have symbols like our first African-American president being elected that also signal how, how much the, the country is changing. And I think that has really set off a lot of fear uh, among many white conservative Christians who uh, see what they have thought they're thought of as their rightful place at the top of the pyramid, at the center of the story, slipping away. And so, you know, the fall lines today, really, that we see in our politics, um, from school boards to the presidential election, have less and less to do with a particular policy or disagreements about how to tackle, uh, you know, particular problems in the country. They're more and more about identity. Who is an American? Who's a legitimate American? Who are we as a country? These are the things that are tearing us apart. And I think it's why we're seeing these older claims really to the country. Um, you know, and, and that's what it was always about is, is this idea that, no, no, this is our country. And if you are not white and Anglo-Saxon and Christian, you know, you're second class. And, and, and I think that's really at the heart of uh, why, why there's so many fights over, over history rather than policy today. So how does the suppression of education and, and this whitewashing of history keep white supremacy, Christian nationalism alive and, and democracy at risk? Well, I'll give you a very personal example. Um, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, going to Jackson Public Schools. Uh, and that, of course, is the home to Megar Evers, um, you know, a famous intrepid civil rights worker who was gunned down in his driveway for, uh, interestingly, I mean, the last campaign he was working on was actually integrating white churches in Jackson, Mississippi. And he was gunned down uh, by a white Episcopalian. But but that happened nine miles from my driveway. And when I graduated at the, at the top of my class uh, from Jackson Public Schools, I had never heard his name. And so this suppression of, of history, this this and, and now a, a kind of you know whitewashing of history that and and the pushback, I think, particularly from the Black Lives Matter movement over the last you know five to seven years that has been foregrounding uh, this history. I think that's why we're seeing this backlash now, I think is about trying to retain this grip on an American history that centers the experience and not only centers the experience of white Christians in the country um, as, quote unquote, the real Americans, but it justifies their place at the top of the pyramid um, with this claim, really. And it, it is quite an audacious claim. and It's an anti-democratic claim. Uh, but it is nonetheless one that has been with us since before the founding of the country. And that is that the U.S. is this promised land for European Christians. What do you make of Trump's presidency and his diehard supporters, especially among evangelicals, um, the January 6th insurrection yeah. and, and even the erosion of, of civil rights and reproductive rights? I, in the book, I draw a straight line um, between, again, this this central idea that, you know, comes to us from these 15th century doctrines all the way up to the insurrection. So if we think about the images we saw that day, um, we saw Trump flags and, and uh, signals of Trump support everywhere. But we also saw 
Confederate flags, um, very prominent symbols of white supremacy, neo-Nazi paraphernalia. And we also saw Christian flags, Bibles, T-shirts with Bible verses on them, all of these things marching in tandem. Um, And it is really a direct line of of kind of claiming uh, this. And if you hear, listen to Trump's language um, all the way back from even on, on the campaign trail, 2015, 2016, you would hear things like, if you don't elect me, we're not going to have a country anymore. And if you kind of any he, he said that first in front of an evangelical audience. Um, and uh, if you kind of interrogate who's the we, who's the our country, um, well, it's pretty clear, you know, that it is this kind of image of a white Christian country. And even the Make America Great Again, the MAGA slogan, uh, all the power in there is not really the part about America being great. The power in that slogan is this last word again, right? This nostalgia word that looks back to the past uh, when uh, these claims really to white supremacy and and white Christian supremacy were uh, less less challenged and when white Christians were a stronger demographic majority in the country. And, you know, we talk about, you know, Republicans and conservatives a lot, but do you think this subconscious even sentiment of white supremacy, white Christian nationalism exists within the Democratic Party, too, to some extent? Well, certainly. I mean, one of the, I think, astounding things is that it exists. This is not just a white evangelical problem or even a white Southern uh, problem. Um, in my previous book, it was called White Too Long. I actually did some deep analysis on attitudes around um, or kind of holding racist attitudes. And what was pretty remarkable there is that, um, again, it wasn't just uh, Southern. Um, in fact, the the predictors there were, were less about region, much more about party. Um, uh, but even in the religious circles, it wasn't just evangelical. Um, in fact, you know, it, I had a scale of one to 10 where 10 was holding the most racist attitudes. Wasn't surprising that white evangelicals scored eight out of 10 um, on that. I mean, it's kind of the former, you know, kind of Southern Baptists and parties in the South and, and, and religious groups in the South. Uh, but what was more surprising is that white mainline Protestants, that is the more kind of liberal end um, uh, that tend to be up in the Northeast and the upper Midwest, uh, scored seven out of ten, and white Catholics um, who are more urban, not not rural, again more northeastern, um, uh, uh, also scored seven out of ten. So you know this is a something that has really been, I think, built into the DNA of kind of white Christianity really across the board. Um, now it, it shows up more, I think, today in the Republican Party because the Republican Party today is 70% white and Christian, whereas the Democratic Party is only 30% white and Christian. Uh, But it's certainly not absent from Democratic Party circles. So how should people be examining and reflecting on their religion, especially if they are Christian? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think it's it's just uh, one of our things incumbent upon us is just to tell uh, a truer story about ourselves. Um, you know, James Baldwin, as quote that's really stayed with me, uh, described how some African-Americans think about uh, whites as uh, thinking about us, uh, we white Christians in, in particular, as the slightly mad victims of our own brainwashing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that really stayed with me because we really have not told the truth about our history. Um, you know, we haven't told the truth really about where we were. Most most white Christians were in Jim Crow, where most white Christians were. Uh, on the issue of slavery and segregation, or, or for that matter, I write about this in the new book, um, where we were on the treatment of indigenous people 
um, uh, here. Uh, you know, there was a, a genocide uh, here in this country for indigenous people, and then forced removal um, off lands that 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 Europeans wanted. Uh, and reckoning with with the way that we uh, were complicit in that as well. So I think it's really about telling truer stories about ourselves. And I think that's important, I think, for both the integrity of kind of our own faith and, and important for how we are going to live together um, uh, today. We, you know, we can't live together in a multiracial, multireligious democracy if we're unwilling to have a common story. And, and that common story can only be had if we're willing to tell the truth. I've been speaking with Robert P. Jones, author of the new book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Coming up, the impact of white Christian nationalism on San Diego and the border region. These are all ways of thinking that were very characteristic of the early English colonization of North America. And you can still hear those thoughts, uh, not just, you know, echoed, but in fact, trumpeted uh, very proudly uh, by leading figures. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. We're continuing the conversation about white Christian nationalism and how America's religious roots shaped our present day. In the early 17th century, English settlers fled Europe and brought Protestant Christianity to the shores of America. A new book by local author John Fanestill draws the connection between that early Protestant Christianity and today's religious extremism and violent nationalism. The name of the book is American Heresy, The Roots and Reach of White Christian Nationalism. And he joins me now to talk more about that early religious experience in America and how it affects us locally. John, welcome to Midday Edition. Good afternoon. You were inspired to write your book in the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection. Uh, tell me more about that. Yeah, I had just published another book. The title of that one was One Life to Give, Martyrdom and the Making of the American Revolution. And this first book was born out of my doctoral work in history uh, at the University of Southern California. And as the, the events of January 6, 2021 unfolded, it was very clear to me that the major players in that um, you know, very sad day in our nation's history were playing a very familiar tune. Uh, they were mixing and blending religious and political themes. They were appropriating Christian rhetoric and uh, symbols. And they were playing out um, you know, their own version, what they considered to be their own version of the American Revolution. So mm. I immediately set about trying to extract from my academic work a more accessible uh, read that would help others understand you know, how these uh, ways of thinking have, have persisted and how they've hung around for so long across generations, centuries even, and how they are still uh, flowering you know, bitter fruit in our day. Yeah. And in the title of your book, uh, you have the phrase American heresy. Can you tell me more about that? What is American heresy? Yeah, American heresy is a, a way of thinking about the Christian tradition that is, in fact, a betrayal of, of the true Christian tradition. So it is a, a heretical 
a distinctly American brand of heretical Christian thought and practice. And it is, uh, as you suggested, rooted in the very early American experience. The English who arrived in North America brought with them the Christian tradition, but they also brought with them prejudices. Uh, they went on to establish a system of racialized uh, slavery. And these practices and ways of thought, you know, habits of heart and mind uh, that they brought with them betray the Christian tradition. They, in fact, uh, run counter to the spirit of Jesus, and they continue to play out in our day. So what are some of the heretical ideas and beliefs that early Christians held? Sure. It's very, they're very easy to see when you think of them. The, uh, when you put on these lenses, suddenly they become very obvious and evident. The notion that America at the end of the day is a racialized uh, caste society with white folks at the top, uh, the fear that those beyond our border are savages who are intent on doing us harm, uh, the unshakable suspicion that government elites are always conspiring against us, the conviction that the United States is, uh, you know, an instrument of divine purpose, the greatest nation on earth, unparalleled and preferred by God to other nations. These are all ways of thinking that were very characteristic of the early English colonization of North America. And you can still hear those thoughts, uh, not just, you know, echoed, but in fact, trumpeted uh, very proudly uh, by leading figures in our politics today. Did they have like Bible verses to support this or? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. English Protestants. This was a Protestant movement. Something most people don't understand or, or we've often forgotten is that the, the overwhelming number of English who colonized North America were Protestants. They were rebelling against the Catholic Church and they did bring their own very unique and distinctive reading of the Bible. Uh, the notion, for instance, that America was the new promised land. Uh, or the notion that they themselves were the chosen people, the new Israel. These are just examples of how they brought um, a particular way of reading the Bible and a particular way of conceiving of their enterprise, their colonial enterprise, uh, that led to these, um, these expressions of the Christian faith um, that um, run counter to the spirit of the gospel. What benefit was it to hold on to those beliefs? There's a real power in the conviction that, you know, that uh, we are the chosen people. Um, the way that is understood and appropriated, you know, is varied. Uh, we can think of ourselves as having been chosen or called for a specific purpose, and that might be a noble purpose. But we can also conceive of ourselves as having been chosen or called uh, to somehow uh, prevail, uh, you know, and reign over others. Again, Jesus, he said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and counseled his disciples consistently to a posture of humility and service. But a reading of the Bible um, by the English colonists led them to conclude, along with their encounter with native peoples, led them to conclude that their call was to conquest. And they set upon generations of uh, war warfare. They were a violent people. They appropriated land from native peoples as a matter of standing practice. And ultimately, that uh, colonial enterprise uh, included the genocide of Native peoples on a, on a mass scale. So it was a, a kind of a, a warped way of interpreting the Christian faith uh, that they played out in this you know, bewildering context. They were in over their heads, of course, as was everyone. It was a new world for everybody, this encounter between Europeans and the Native peoples of North America. 
As a San Diego native, how have you personally seen the lasting legacy of this, you know, white supremacy and white Christian nationalism um, live on here? Well, of course, it's easiest to see in the most strident voices and strident examples. So, for instance, I, I have done work across many decades on the U.S.-Mexico border, and pretty much any time there's an article about the border on our, whether it be our local news platforms or the national news platforms, the comment boards fill up with, you know, vitriol and hate and outright expressions of white racism. So this kind of visceral uh, animosity and this visceral hatred of people who are uh, beyond our borders is very, you know, emblematic. It's a, a classic characteristic of white Christian nationalism. But those extreme examples, again, are the easiest to see more um, important, I think, for white Americans and especially white American Christians like myself is to understand that we've all been shaped by these ways of thinking. So I'll give an, an example of the way we can think about this more systemically, if you will. Uh, San Diego, like every other major city in the United States, is a profoundly segregated city. But this racial segregation of the city is rooted in practices of land use that, again, date back to the early colonial experiment. And we, in our own history right here in San Diego, the nature of our city over the last couple of generations has been profoundly shaped by the appropriation of land, the devastation and bisection or dissection of the historic barrio of San Diego, Barrio Logan, the running of freeways through the southeast quadrant of our city, uh, southeast San Diego. These were you know, federal and or state government appropriations of land uh, in which they simply took land um, from the current residents in order to facilitate uh, the growth of the suburbs, which of course remained principally white. And those suburbs were protected uh, often by outright racial policies like redlining and uh, restrictive covenants, but they were also uh, remained white by virtue of predatory lending practices and, and or racial discrimination within the housing and lending industries. So we now are more cognizant in our day of these kinds of the way this plays out in our society. And there are you know, prominent movements working against these kinds of uh, prejudices and these kinds of institutionalized practices. But they still are very powerfully, they're very powerfully at play. Uh, San Diego is uh, very much like other American cities, uh, deeply shaped by this racialized religious inheritance. So by your definition, then this sort of perversion of Christianity uh, equates to whiteness. Yes, there is a racialized quality to it, no question. And this, uh, it was really in the, uh, took several generations before uh, a consensus was formed across the English colonies. This was in the buildup to the American Revolution. Uh, the colonies, of course, were very diverse, uh, diverse religious traditions, diverse uh, migratory flows. But in the buildup to the American Revolution, the colonies found common ground. And we're familiar with the common ground they found you know, along high-minded political ideals, like no taxation without representation, and uh, you know, getting rid of uh, the monarchy, for instance. But they also formed common ground in religious terms around a, a, a kind of a generalized or generic Protestant consensus. And part of that Protestant consensus was very much uh, the understanding that they were, they shared something in common, whether they were Germans from in Pennsylvania, or uh, Puritans in New England, or Anglicans in Virginia, they shared something in common. And what that common was, was a racialized identity as white people. So whiteness emerged in conjunction with the American Revolution and has remained a powerful uh, force in American society uh, by virtue of this shared understanding of whiteness. 
uh, which is uh, racially grounded and religiously grounded as well. You studied theology and worked as a pastor. What's being preached from the pulpit today? I mean, how do you see white Christian nationalism, white supremacy um, perpetuated in church spaces? This varies greatly, of course, and we can't paint with a single broad brush across the entire Christian tradition. There are uh, churches, including some locally, who are quite, um, the pastors are quite unabashed in their championing of what I would consider uh, Christian heresy, uh, the heresy of white Christian nationalism. They demonize uh, people uh, from without. They uh, champion uh, unique uh, divine sanction uh, on the American experiment, and they uh, fail to practice the humility uh, that Jesus counseled for his disciples. But there are many other uh, churches, of course, where this is not preached or practiced openly, and where these trends and these influences tend to percolate a little bit below the surface. And while they might not be preached from the pulpit, they still play out in the way that people uh, within even sometimes progressive uh, churches will play out their their land use, for instance, or their use of their buildings, or the way in which they conduct their mission trips and uh, practices of taking the the presumed privileges and the presumed uh, superiority of their ways of doing things and attempt to transport those or implant those in other people's people who they might be trying ostensibly to serve in mission. Mm. So in my experience, uh, having pastored many uh, predominantly white churches here in Southern California across many years, these influences and trends, these ways of thinking are very, uh, very subtle, uh, but they reside deep within the white American soul, uh, including my own. And we as white uh, American Christians need always to be conscious and conscientious of our prejudices and uh, diligent in practicing a way of faith that is more authentic and that resists these these heretical temptations. When we look at the policies that are being created and the political landscape of today, do you see this being corrosive to our democracy? And what's the consequence of not having the tough conversations and reflection about the early forms of Christianity and contemporary and its link to white Christian nationalism? Yes, it is It is a threat, and it is a corrosive element, but I would emphasize that it's always been there in American culture. Um, some, I think we're often prone to think that we're the you know, first generation to have to confront these dynamics, but this is, these have always been present in American public life, and there have always been prominent public figures who have spouted uh, you know, the very worst of white Christian nationalism, and they've always found a, a very a wide and uh, welcome audience. So uh, the notion that this is a perpetual struggle, that uh, struggle for, you know, a true um, American spirit requires perpetual vigilance. I think that's true for every American generation. I guess I would say that the notion that we have to, you know, fight against others to protect that, or that we somehow have to vanquish the religious, you know, the religious elements of our history is, I think, a false, uh, you know, a siren cry. I think many on the left, uh, somehow think that if we would just get over our religion, then you know every, every everything would just be fine. Uh, but that way of thinking, in my mind, belies and, and misses out on the intrinsic nature of the religious experience of North America and the United States. That the revolution was fueled by both political and religious passions at the same time. 
and that these religious traditions are part of the American fabric. And I've often brought about very sweet fruit, if you will. Uh, we can think of the abolition movement that was led uh, by both white and black people who were deeply, deeply rooted in the Christian faith. I think it's much more uh, inevitable or, or necessary that we confront the reality and uh, confront honestly the powerful role that religion has always played in American life and then seek to confront that with honesty and humility and to understand that repentance is required to use religious language as often as uh, celebration. I've been speaking with John Fanistel, author of the new book, American Heresy, The Roots and Reach of White Christian Nationalism. He will have a book talk on October 29th at St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Coronado. John, thank you so much for joining us and for your insight today. Thank you. Coming up, how youth are challenging white supremacy culture within the Christian church. I find that young people are heavily impacted by the way white nationalism has shaped a lot of church spaces. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. We've been talking about the history behind white Christian nationalism and what it means today. White supremacy has long existed within Western Christianity, and we see that legacy today as white nationalism continues to be perpetuated in some church spaces. It's a difficult history to grapple with, so how are young people coming to terms with it? Reverend Montague Williams, Ph.D., is a professor of church, culture, and society at Point Loma Nazarene University. His doctorate is in theology studies from Boston University. He is author of the book Church in Color, Youth Ministry, Race, and the Theology of Martin Luther King Jr. He joins us now to talk about the path forward. Professor Williams, welcome to Midday. Hi, Jade. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. It's great to have you here to talk about this. So, you know, I want to dig more into the relationship between religion and systemic racism. What have you found through your research? Well, my research looks closely at the lives of young people in churches. And uh, imagine being a young person in a church where the images, the ideas around what it means to be Christian is heavily influenced by white nationalism. But your own life and story does not make sense in light of trying to lift up white nationalism as like it's some good thing. I find that young people are heavily impacted by the way white nationalism has shaped a lot of church spaces. And talk about that more. I mean, how has it shaped church spaces? Well, it's it depends on on where you go and you know what city you're talking about and what tradition within Christian life you're talking about, but one major way that it has shaped youth ministry is this attempt to try to put forth a Christian faith that doesn't engage 
the realities of race and racism and racial identity. Uh, this attempt to try to present a colorblind Christian faith, even to the point of lifting up colorblindness as some sort of Christian virtue, which it's actually quite an anti-virtue to Christian faith. Hmm. And we keep hearing and saying over and over that Western Christianity has ties to white supremacy and white nationalism. Can you talk about how you view that? And, and how does white supremacy have historical roots in Western Christianity? I guess I want to first say this. There is one way to talk about Christian faith as if it's so tied to white nationalism. And I think your question is helpful because really it's a particular form of Christian faith that is. And if you were to go all the way back to the Council of Chalcedon and look at the split between Western and Eastern church life, it's not simply a split of ideas. It's also a split between cultures. And you find the Western framework lifted up in the particular stream of Christianity that we tend to talk about when we talk about white nationalism's influence. But really, Christianity existed clearly in Asia before anywhere else and in on the continent of Africa at least as long as it's been in Europe, if not before. And the fact that that comes off as alarming and surprising is a result of white nationalism shaping Christian faith. The fact that it is more common for churches to lift up a picture of Jesus as blonde with blue eyes, and, and to think of that as acceptable, and even more acceptable than images that seeks to imagine or portray Jesus in a Middle Eastern context, the fact that, that you can say like, well, that might be pushing things a little bit. I mean, it tells you that there is a particular idea of what and who matters most that has infected the church, even if, even if Western Christianity doesn't like to admit it. You know, I'm, I'm curious, too, because, like, how would one even identify white supremacist ideas within Christianity? Because it is in some ways so deeply ingrained. You know, you mentioned the blonde-haired, blue-eyed picture of Jesus. And yet, you know, there are Baptist churches that I could walk into today who have that image of Jesus in stained glass on windows. How does one, how is one able to like, to, to sort of decolonize Christianity? Yes. Well, let's just first of all say that takes a lot of work. It is not something that reading a book or having a book study is going to accomplish. It takes, it, it takes a lot of work. It takes dedication. It takes uh, a willingness to be honest, even when that honesty challenges, you know, one's own institution's existence and what they've been up to. But it's also this, you know, it's easy to talk about white nationalism or even white supremacy or the myth of whiteness only having an effect on people who would be identified as white. But the reality is that myth is it's a lure and a lie that is offered to everybody. And because of that, these images of worship shape all kinds of communities. You know, in, in the, the picture of Jesus is just one aspect. It's also the picture of 
of leadership, like who gets to be in leadership. And, you know, white supremacy is connected also to a sort of male dominance. There are intersections of injustice that are at play in it. And you begin to make a shift by addressing those injustices, by naming them. And you you have to confess that you're not going to escape its existence, but what you can do is be committed to its to, to the resistance. And you can allow that resistance to become a joyful resistance. You can allow that resistance to become not just something I put on my own shoulders, but something that a particular we puts on our shoulders together. That we're committed to learning about the stories in our neighborhood, that we're committed to learning about the stories of our denominations, the stories of our congregations, that it, that it is a commitment in order to lean into truth. And I mean, looking ahead to the next generation, you know, you wrote Church in Color uh, and you mentioned, you know, it's about young people's experiences and their ministries and how they think about race and racism in the church. So what did you hear from them and what are some of the difficult questions they've raised? Well, in that book, I look at a few different communities that embody different racial makeup but predominantly BIPOC, predominantly young people of color. And what's interesting is that partially because of some institutional ties of those churches and some assumptions more broadly uh, around church life, a lot of these young people just feel like they've got to engage some of their hardest questions somewhere else. Church becomes for them a place for certain kinds of community, and that's what lets it last is the, the deepening of some relationships there, but those relationships tend to encounter their engagement with race and racism and racial identity. It, they do that outside the walls because they often find that church leaders really aren't equipped to take those questions seriously or to hear their stories, you know, there's the stories of their own observation and experience with racism, that it doesn't always fit well. Now, I'm not talking about every congregation in the United States, but I am saying that in certain communities, those that lean politically conservative and politically you know, more liberal, because of the, the constraint and the weight of trying to keep a certain nicety alive, it's difficult for church life to to take on the stories and connect well with young people's longing for purpose, identity, and belonging. And what I seek to do is to help congregations lean into some practices, discern well how they can connect well with young people and allow young people's questions and experiences and sense of wonder really take a a place in the life of the church that helps the entire congregation become more honest and more faithful. I mean, you know, you mentioned a bit about challenging the status quo, which takes a lot of bravery, right? Because, you know, oftentimes in church, you're told not to question things and to just have faith. And that that is (laughs) such a huge part of being a loyal follower of Christ. So mm-hmm. how do you how do you suggest one uh, move beyond that? Yeah. So this is why the image of Jesus is really important. Um, 
I do think that's an important place to start. I I teach a course here uh, on theological ethics and Martin Luther King Jr. And students engage not only King, but also King's influences and contemporary voices around King in his day. And we do that with theology in mind. And, you know, a major influence on King is Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman was ultimately a mentor for King. And it is said that King carried around Thurman's book uh, called Jesus and the Disinherited. And in that book, Thurman lays out an understanding of Jesus as tied to people who were socioeconomically marginalized. And as students engage that, one student says in the class, I'm 20 years old, and I was 20 years old when I learned that Jesus identified with marginalized communities. Not that Jesus just cared about marginalized communities, but Jesus actually came from a marginalized community. He was part of the people who had their backs against the wall. And she says, why am I only tw- why am I 20 years old when I learned that for the first time? So how did I grow up in the church and never learn that? And it was like a, you know, a light bulb or this moment of like, this changes so much of how I read everything in scripture. And so it's like a simple, it's a simple thing in some ways because you do see it all over scripture. To say Jesus came from Nazareth is to say Jesus is the Messiah from the side of town that people were afraid to go to. Jesus is from what people would consider the wrong side of the tracks. Jesus is from the place that people thought nothing good can come out of. And that's where, as Jesus followers believe, that's where we find the embodiment of goodness for the entire world out of the place that people thought nothing good can come out of. And what does that say about neighborhoods in San Diego? Where where should we honor? What does that say about areas of the world, about where we should honor and recognize not as just places to, to help, but places to say, wait a second, goodness is coming out of here. Goodness is coming out of here. This is, this is where God chose to allow the hope for the entire world to come out. So Let's take a moment and pay attention. Hmm. I mean, and it sounds like coming to terms with that and the contemporary ways in which white nationalism and white supremacy exist within the religion is key to moving forward. I've been speaking with Montague Williams. Uh, He's a professor of church, culture, and society at Point Loma Nazarene University. And Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at 5 for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.